Hello and welcome to That's So Craven. We are now streaming live on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and Twitch. Make sure you follow us on all social media and subscribe to be notified when a live recording starts. Please, please, please share That's So Craven with your Fulham friends to keep our community growing. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and come on you whites. Hello and welcome to the That's So Craven podcast, your Fulham podcast from Down Under, here today to discuss a lot of news and uh, preview the West Ham game coming up this weekend. Joined today by Sammy, thanks for coming back to us, Sam. I know, I'm finally here. I've had a migraine in the past couple of days, but no, it's, it's less, it's just, there's so much to do. There is so much to do. You're looking very chilled, sitting yoga pose. Uh, I think you're you're ramping up to to stay calm in this one. Hopefully, I am in my pajamas. I'm yeah. I I don't want to say I'm excited for what we're going to discuss, but I'm I'm ready, ready. <laughs> and also joining us, we have Elton. How are we going, Dad? Hey, Jack. Um, yep, yeah, I guess I'm ready too. Right. Well, let's crack straight into it. Um, a lot has happened in the last 24 hours. We obviously released a podcast not that long ago. Um, since then, uh, there's there's been news. Um, we finally heard uh, the decision from the FA on the bans for Mitrovic and Marco Silva. Mitro getting an eight-game ban in total, one of which has already served, and Marco Silva getting a two-game ban. Fulham also getting fined um, an awful lot of money. Silva got fined 20000 um, and an additional 20000 on top of that for his post-match press conference. Uh, Mitro fined $75,000 um, for improper conduct, and um, Fulham, on top of that, fined an additional 40000 for failure to control their players. So um, uh, quick maths, I think that is all up 80000 plus £75,000, over £150,000 worth of fines. That all happened in about 90 seconds. Uh, just extraordinary the amount of um of sanctions i guess imposed on fulham sammy your initial thoughts um obviously it's not all we're going to talk about today we're going to preview the west ham game and also have a bit of a dive into um fulham's accounts which were recently released um but sammy the the whole deal with metro and everything that's happened just give us your thoughts now that the decision has been handed down you really are getting like my immediate reaction because full disclosure, I usually try to do a little bit of homework, but I'm really just kind of fresh out the gates right now. So this is, this is my immediate, this really is my immediate thoughts. It's, it's, a, it, it really is a lot, isn't it? It's, 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 I don't know. It's quite hard not to be a little bit bitter about it because it's very clear that they're making an example of us. And I don't want to say it's kind of like picking on the little guy, but it is, it's, it is a lot. Um, it doesn't really scream overly fair, especially when you consider that much money um, that you've just kind of mentioned, because eight games is one thing, but that's a, that's a really considerable amount of money in a very finite moment. Um yeah, there's yeah, this this is gonna 
this is going to really go into a bit of a philosophical, political debate. I can already <laughs> feel it. Dad, on that note, you're the best person to do that. Yeah, well, I can't even hide my frustration and bitterness about this. You were so bitter think... on the last pod. It was really, it was good listening. I enjoyed it for people who haven't checked uh, it out. Yeah, look, it's it, it just seems unjust and unfair, and it's such a difficult one because I, I'm constantly torn between. W- absolutely wanting to hold everyone to account for decent behavior and because the the negative effects of all of that everyone understands um and you know no no one wants that in the game particularly down to grassroots levels with kids involved and parents you know um doing terrible things to Referees are essentially uh, volunteering their time. Awful stuff. But um, I, I just feel when when you throw the book at someone, you're actually you're actually making an example of them. And you, you, this is an age old trick. When you make an example of someone, you're actually issuing a warning to other people that if you misbehave, this is how you will be dealt with. Because we really don't want you to do that. And everyone knows that is not what's going to happen. It didn't happen before because this is not fairly meted out. And that's the frustration. I guess just to sort of preface everything that's been said so far, we I don't think any of us are saying what Mitro did was okay. I, oh, I, yeah. I want to make that pretty clear that I, th- I think we're all against um, – any sort of touching of a referee, you shouldn't touch a referee. That's a given. He he was wrong in what he did. The issue that I have, and I think we all have, and, and the majority of the fan base has as well, is that this suspension is excessive. It seems extremely harsh for, for what happened, especially in terms of consistency. And we talk about it across the board in terms of we want consistency from the way Fulham play. We want consistency from referees want consistency in decision. Uh, consistency is what holds everything together, and we, we're not seeing that at the moment. Um, we look at, at this ban and compare it to previous bans handed down in the Premier League. We saw Luis Suarez racially abuse uh, another player. Uh, he got the same length of ban. Um, we saw Luis Suarez bite a player. He, um, he got one game or two games more than Mitro's getting. We saw Di Canio push a referee to the floor. He got an 11 game ban. Like we're talking serious differences here. Like what with what Mitro did. And then you look at what happened on the weekend in the Nottingham Forest against Wolves game. Chris Kavanagh, unfortunately is just finding himself in the middle of it again. And again, it's because of his refereeing decisions and his consistency. Um, what looked like, should have been a stonewall penalty. Um, he he doesn't give somehow. The Forest players run over, and there are three different instances where you can see Forest players laying hands on him. He doesn't even tell them to stop or pull out a yellow card, and that's where the problem lies: is the fact that it's it's rules for one and rules for another, and we're definitely getting the short end of the stick here. We're seeing things like you know, racism thrown around uh, and saying, you know, because Mitro's Serbian, he's getting it 
harsher. I think one of the fair comments that's been made is that the top six clubs do not get this treatment. And yeah. we saw it. We saw Fernandez put his hand on an assistant referee and the FA basically turning a blind eye to it completely. Um, and, and look, you can say that the, the contact was different and it wasn't the same, but if you're going to start handing out eight-game bans to players for touching referees, then any time a player touches a referee, you have to do the same. And it's going to be really interesting to see how the FA follow this up now because... I, I can't understand how you can give this kind of ban to Mitrovic and then not consistently be handing out eight-game bans going forward. Can, can I just say that, to, to be really clear here, where at least I stand, and I'm sure we all do, I think it's different. You can't entirely compare racial abuse between two players, physical violence between mm. two players, to... Yeah behavior towards the ref and I think there are a couple of different elements to Metro's behavior one is touching the ref and you could try and argue about the nuances of hey touch the you touch the ref you can't do that mm -hmm. end of story no complaints but he also got right up in the ref's, ref's grill very aggressively the guy's walking back he's pointing his finger very very aggressively that's very intimidating. You can't do that either, right? So that that was the, after the initial red card, which was handed out for touching the referee. Doesn't matter. Though. Doesn't yeah. matter. Um, you, let, let, if we're talking about what's acceptable behaviour and what isn't, you shouldn't do it. And so, uh, I mean, none of it was be, acceptable. Yeah, um, but then it goes further than okay. So now we're guilty, and Mitra's apologised, and uh, you know, all but a very few. Margins, oh, a few margins, that's not even a word. Excluding the margins, most reasonable people think it's not okay and it should be punished, end of story. But we're talking about fairness. And I think that's what we're uh, ever so quietly up in arms about. Yeah, I said it. Um, I said it uh, when we initially covered the entire incident, which honestly feels like a lifetime ago. But like the thing that I was really frustrated about with Mitrovic is, and everyone's a genius in hindsight, I understand that. But like, this was always going to happen to us because we're a team that people make examples of. It's it's too much of a political thing if it happens to um, Man City or Arsenal or Liverpool, any of those big clubs, but they can do it to us. That's the part that's really unfair about it. And I know it's I know it's very obvious. But yeah, it's I'm I'm I want to be more frustrated than I am about it because if if it, I felt like this was going to happen, I felt like it was going to be about eight or nine games. Just because we like it was it was always going to be us or a like a team fighting relegation. If this was going to happen, it was going to happen to us. And that's, that's the part that really kind of stings about it because you're right. You can compare other situations, but uh, it, I feel that our guys should have been a little bit more aware because in my opinion, you can't be a premier league player and not really fully understand where you sit in the zeitgeist. Yeah. Um... Yeah, you know, what, what really concerns me, which I think we're all kind of echoing, is that there's been plenty of commentary. I mean, so much commentary in the media um, 
um, excluding the hysteria and all the the sort of cries to to, to hang Mitro and Fulham and Silver, there's also been a huge amount of insight about the difficult situation that the FA now face in actually coming down fairly when clearly there have been, in very recent history, there have been a number of incidents which have been totally overlooked mm. with the bigger clubs. And what really worries me is how the FA have kind of just looked through that and gone, yeah, not worried about that, don't care what you say, don't care about the criticism, you guys are small, we can do it to you, here it comes. Do you know what I think That's is really concerning? Do you know what I think is even more bollocks as well, Dad? Like, um, because like I did a, I did a, a very, I, I think I looked at like two YouTube videos, and the the rhetoric has just completely shifted now because it's the the tastiest story, but it's gone from the witch hunt on Mitrovic and Silva to like, oh, this is too harsh now. It's like, oh, I can't, yeah, you can't do something like this. It's it's too hard of man. It's like the the. Uh, what? How do you even articulate it? It's like I feel that this um, decision is very emotionally driven, and I think a lot. I think the FA have gotten really sucked into like the politics of it, as opposed to judging it fully around the context of what's actually happening. We've been made an example of. We've yeah, we've said that that many times, but uh, it just sucks. It just really sucks, doesn't it? Yep. Yeah. Look, uh, I mean. What we do have to do now is is kind of just accept that this is uh, this is what's happened. Uh, yeah. Obviously, we'll, we'll cover it a little bit more later. But um, the FA have said they're going to appeal the decision because they believe the ban should be longer, um, which is just slightly mind boggling to me, considering an eight game ban already seems excessive. Um, but we do sort of need to move forward and and just accept that we're going to be missing Mitro for the majority of the rest of the season. Um, Silver's picked up a two-game sideline ban. Um, you know, that will have an effect, but I don't think it's as big an effect as, as losing your main striker. Um, they're both still going to be around the squad, but um, go on, Sammy, you have a point? Sorry, I, j- I just remembered one last thing because, like, um, I was I was die because I'm a diehard fan of this podcast, obviously. But I was listening to um, you guys, uh, like, and actually specifically, I was listening to Dad really get like very heated about um, the most recent game about Bournemouth, and I wanted to put my two cents in. And I do think it's relevant to this conversation. So I think last game was a bit like, have you guys ever been at like? a bar or something like that and you've just recently broken up with somebody and you're like okay great well that people have lived experiences outside of that um uh, but so like have you ever been to like and you're living in that moment and you're like yeah i'm out with my friends i don't need that person and then and then you see them or you see somebody that looks kind of like them and then it, it all kind of like crumbles down and then all that kind of confidence just withers away i feel like the second we conceded everything just kind of washed over us in that moment and we just kind of fell apart in the second half as a result of that that was my kind of analysis in that moment Uh, does that make sense i'd like to say it's that simple i don't think it is but uh, i mean i I appreciate your your attempted analogy there i think it was quite good um and yeah look i mean you could you could easily say that's that that's kind of how it felt watching it I don't think that's what actually happened, but um, 
but yeah, no, I, I, I think you're you're on the right track there. That it, like we said, it was a game of two halves where he came out and everything was looking rosy and we were feeling good about it and loving watching it. And then, yep, heap, uh, which was a yeah. real shame. Um, look, we we've got so much to go through, guys. Let's talk about the upcoming game against West Ham. Um, I've included uh, for those following along live uh, the timings for the game as well. So. Uh, a 3 p.m. kickoff in the UK. That's 10 p.m. over here in Western Australia. Uh, midnight over in uh, in the Eastern States, and then over in the US, uh, a 7 a.m. kickoff Pacific time, and then an 8 a.m. kickoff Eastern. Sorry, a 10 a.m. kickoff Eastern time. So, um, a big game against West Ham. Let's have a quick look at the last five for both teams. Um, Fulham on a pretty dire run at the moment and conceding goals as well, which is something that. Um, is a little bit more obvious when when we line it up like this for those on the live stream. Um, we can see we've lost the last four games, a 2-1 loss to Bournemouth, 3-1 to Man United, 3-0 to Arsenal, 3-2 to Brentford, and then the 2-0 win against Leeds uh, five games ago, which just seems like a lifetime ago now, that good win in the FA Cup. Um, Fulham conceding 11 goals in their last four games, admittedly a couple of those against Man United with just nine men on the field, but Dad, is there a bit of a worry? Um, you know, we've we've been saying our form has not been wonderful for quite some time now. Um, but when you're starting to look at it like this on paper and seeing four losses in a row, 11 goals conceded in those four games, uh, considering Bernd Leno is still playing very, very well as well and, you know, keeping out multiple goals every time we play, it, should we be worried? Well, excluding the weird afternoon that was Bournemouth and setting aside Leeds as well. If you you know, Man United asked Brentford, decent opposition. Um, and if you throw into the mix there, the fact we were down to nine men and against Man United. So are you surprised that Arsenal could put three past us? Not really. Brentford, three past us? Kind of. Not really either. Um, so... I don't think that these are just any old run of fixtures. There's some tough games in there. Yeah. And it's it's possibly a little bit harsh to try and draw too many wider conclusions about our capability, our form for sure. That is our form. Where that, that That's what we're looking at. But, um, <laughs> well, funny, funnily enough, if if you'd asked me the question about our defence and my anxiety about whether we are getting leaky before Bournemouth, I would have said absolutely not. I would have said we played a couple of tough games and things are going well and we just got opened up by very good teams. The way that we defended at times against Bournemouth is something else and it's definitely of some concern. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I think you can explain away a couple of those uh, those results. But, you know, for me, that, that second half against Bournemouth was was a real worry. The way we got... I mean, even in, in some instances, the first half, we got torn apart. Um, and it was worrying that the back line, who we've been talking about being so solid this season, seemed to get split very easily. And as, as I said previously, that was... You know, if you take from Reed and Polina backwards, that was our sort of strongest seven, if you if you want. Um, 
And we we just seem to get they seem to have players in space multiple times. Um, you know, sort of not quite one on one with Leno, but two on two or three on two situations where we were massively on the back foot, and it, it just seemed like maybe teams are starting to find us out a little bit, and and it is it is fractionally worrying. Um, we uh, look at West. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Jack. May I? Yeah. So I, I've thought about this too much because it bothers <laughs> me, and I can't and I can't sort of work it out. So I really have been thinking about this way too much. And as much as professional sportsmen and their managers um, and soldiers and anyone who's charged with, you know, being able to compartmentalise things and have a have a very ironclad mind would like to have you believe that outside external factors don't bother them. I'm starting to believe that that that's just not true because when these yeah, unexplained things when these unexplained things happen and you, you you look at little moments of what can only be described as lapses in conversation because you know players don't always do these things uh, over the course of a season over their careers they're better than that you go what just what happened there what just happened and the um, same may well be onto something uh, when he describes what happened after that goal went in. You know, we pumped ourselves up and maybe our chests were really inflated and we thought we were right on top. We got this. We're going into into Bournemouth. We're past the ball around. It's all going really, really well. And we have this fragile sense that what happened at Man United doesn't bother us and all that kind of good stuff. And we're professional and we, 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 we know where we are. And then the smallest thing happens and psychologically, we ever so slightly fold. But I, I don't think we it, we... it wasn't after the goal was conceded that we looked poor. They they dominated us for that first five minutes of the second half, um, and that's why we conceded that goal, because we were all over the place. And I don't think you can put that down to... Um, circumstances, because if that was the case, then the first half would have been poor as well. Sammy, you you wanted to add something to that? Yeah, I think we can kind of put it down to circumstances because, like, um, there there is there's a lot of context um, to the game as well. Because obviously, we had a lot going on behind the scenes, but it's the reason why the game is beautiful and why I think it's the best game in the world, purely because of things like relegation and fundamentally. Bournemouth needed that game and it's kind of when statistics go a little bit out the window I think when teams are in a desperate relegation fight because they're going to rock up with a lot more fire in their belly than teams that are fifth seventh eighth in the table just because they are scrapping it's what it's genuinely what makes the game intensely interesting and in my opinion has uh, the edge of a games like rugby and AFL. Um, and a Bournemouth needed that. They needed that significantly more than we did. Uh, we had a point to prove to ourselves, but um, uh, an emotional point to prove over trying to stay in the Premier League, I think I think one edged out the other. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. Can I, yeah. Can I just add one point, Jack, to your comment about the, the fact that Bournemouth came at us? You're dead right. That's because, you know, 
from a viewer perspective, that is exactly what we observed. That is what happened. But it's not a new theme. There's a fragility to our resistance when that happens, when teams press us hard, when teams come at us, we're fragile, we do tend to fall apart. And I and I think added to that, I think there was a, a kind of a false sense of um, we got this and then when Bournemouth came at us, we, we just didn't react at all. We, we did not, we did not react. And uh, I guess that's what I'm trying to make. Yeah, I no, I, it, I agree. I think, uh, I, and I think you briefly touched on it last, uh, last part. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really annoyed that I actually wasn't there to discuss it with you, but um, you guys did very briefly bring up the point of, are we uh, a, a really good team or are we overperforming and we're a team of, good players that are excellently run at the moment. I think we're a team of good players that are very, very well run. Like uh, uh, Leeds with Bielsa kind of style. It's a, We'll talk about a, a Fulham with Marco Silva because, I mean, it's this team isn't very different to the one that Scott Parker had. And the difference in performance level is significant. Um, and um, when teams like that face pretty enormous pressure, is it harsh to say that we're not in the best position to kind of overcome that? Because it takes, like, you got to be a championship team to kind of, like, fight back really, really strong. It's amazing when we do it, but you expect it from your Liverpools, your Arsenals, your Man Cities. It's a lot tougher for a team like us because we don't have the quality and depth, in my opinion. Look, let's let's keep moving on because I, I want to talk about the upcoming game rather than cover the yeah, full game again. Um, let's look at West Ham's last five. Uh, we see some actually pretty good results for West Ham, and we'll take a look at the table shortly as well, and that'll tell a story too. Um, we see uh, West Ham with a 1-0 win recently against Southampton. They're still in the Europa League and doing pretty well considering they beat uh, AEK Athens 6-0 in aggregate. So they've played them twice in the last five games. A 4-0 win at home, a 2-0 win away. A one-all draw with Aston Villa, who I think are actually sitting up in about eighth at the moment. Um, some really good results from Villa recently, so that's a pretty good result. And then a 4-0 loss uh, away to Brighton. We know how hard it is to go to Brighton. We know how good a team they are. So that... Um, you know, I think that result is probably fair, and most teams would do well to get away with um, anything less than a 4 0 win against Brighton. Um, Dad, do you think West Ham's position in the league, they're sitting, uh, I'll have a quick look at the table actually, just to be accurate. They're sitting 15th at the moment. Um, based on those fixtures, though, and the fact that West Ham actually have two games in hand over the teams around them who've all played 29. West Ham have played just the 27. Do you think maybe West Ham aren't doing quite as badly as their league position currently shows? Um, <laughs> I, I think there or thereabouts, your league position at this point in the table is, does reflect how you're really performing. And, mm. you know, they're, they are in trouble. Um and I, I think to that I would expect the same kind of concerns when we play them um, as we, we, we found with Bournemouth. 
um, I, I, I don't know. I think, I think, you know, I think you can have that conversation in the first dozen games of the season, Jack, where you've played some tough opposition. You haven't quite found your feet yet. And you'd have a couple of Well, they of do have the games in hand, though. So it's, it, and we, we've seen what that's like at the top of the table when teams haven't played the same number of fixtures and the table does look a little bit lopsided and doesn't quite look right. And it does even itself out. I'm saying West Ham's form actually looks pretty good recently. Um, yeah. With the two games in hand, let's say. Get some up to 12, 13 we, for sure. I mean, let's say we win this game, but even if they win one of those two games, they're on 30 points, admittedly still only a few points out of the out of the relegation zone. But even then, I think they'll still, because the other teams in the league are playing on the weekend, they'll still have a game in hand over all of them. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say because they're the only team in amongst it who have those games in hand. But if they did win both of those, they're on 32 points and just gives themselves five points buffer. And I think five points as a buffer at this point of the season, when it's so tight down the bottom of the table, is actually a huge margin when you're looking at the yeah, fact Yeah, no, that I think that's fair comment. There's, there's two points between 13th and 18th at the moment. If you've got five points as a buffer there, you're actually in a really, really good position. Um, obviously a long way to go, but I, I think... Let's have a quick look at um, how West Ham might potentially line up. And this is based on the last fixture. And, you know, we, we talk about, well, I'm talking about the fact that I think West Ham are actually a fairly decent side. If we run through their lineup, how, how they lined up in the last game, at least, um, I think it's pretty clear that they, they have the talent there. It's just the fact that they're not getting results. Um, we have Fabianski in goal, currently preferred to Areola. Um, across the back for... Uh, Kera, Zuma, Aguered, and Emerson. Uh, a midfield three of Suchek, Rice, and Paqueta. And then up front, uh, we see Jared Bowen, Danny Ings, and Saad Ben Rama. Um, now, obviously, when we played West Ham last time out, we lost 3 1. Um, I, I think there were reasons as to why we lost 3 1, but there's a lot of quality in this West Ham team. You know, Paqueta is on the, the edge of the Brazilians team. Suchek was one of the players of the season uh, a couple of years ago. Jared Bowen is very talented. We know how talented Ben Rama is. Kurt Zuma, very good defender. Emerson, you know, won the European Championships with Italy. Fabianski, very good goalkeeper. Like this is a it's a really decent West Ham team. Didn't even and I think Declan Rice. <laughs> well, yeah, Declan yeah. Rice, obviously an in England midfielder, um, and and the West Ham captain. Like this is. It's a team full of talent. And I think a lot of the time when we look at lineups, you know, we looked at Bournemouth last week and I think we, we couldn't pick many instances where man for man they were a better side. But I look at this West Ham lineup and, I mean, I'm looking across the middle, obviously Polina, um easily gets into pretty much any team in the Premier League. But Suchek, Rice and Paqueta, you take most, I'd say all of them over Reed, Pereira, um, mm. On the wings, Ben Rama, I'd take over BDR. Jared Bowen is a very handy player. I probably wouldn't take him over William on form at the moment, but Danny, Danny Ings up front oh, over quality. Carlos Vinicius as well. Like, you know, man for man, it probably looks like a slightly stronger West Ham side, which, um, you know, yeah, I, I think fair. this this fair. actually could be quite a tough fixture for us. Yeah, even I, I though think it will be. In the table, it looks like we're... we're you know, strides ahead of West Ham. I don't think that's actually the case. 
Um, uh, I don't want to play him, you know. Like, <laughs> I actually don't. I, 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 I feel the same. It, it feels like a tough fixture and it feels like one that you don't want off the back of a team like Bournemouth. And, and like we discussed um, a few weeks ago, going into this run of fixtures where we play a lot of teams who are in the relegation battle, I, I think the teams down the bottom have so much more to fight for than us. And um, I'll pull up a, a comment from James Price who's following us along live on Facebook um, saying, you know, we're this is James's opinion, that we're on the beach, we're safe, unlikely to get Europe now, and hopefully we don't get hit with second season syndrome and this poor patch of form is just a hiccup. And look, I think it's an argument to say that maybe we're on the beach. I don't think so necessarily, but we definitely have a lot less to play for than the other teams that we're coming up against in the coming weeks. Um, West Ham can't afford too many slip-ups because they are currently level on points with the team in the relegation zone. They need to pick up points, especially with these games in hand. These are like gold for a team like West Ham at the moment. So they're mm. coming to to Craven Cottage saying, if we get a win here, we, we're getting some breathing space. Yeah, I'm, I'm really wary of us ending the season poorly because like, the the Premier League is really vicious, so I I almost don't want to be lulled into a false sense of security. It's too easy to go down off of like, it's it's too easy to be have like a strong first season in the Prem, and then just go down the following season. And yeah, as we as we said before, I'm like I'm not a West Ham expert. I'm not going to claim to be in any capacity. I don't know what the context is with them. I don't know necessarily why they're in the position that they are, but. Any relegation team at the moment, I am, I'm almost more scared of them than going up against a top four squad because yeah, there's less pressure and there's actually more opportunity for us to play against them. These these teams are are really really dangerous, in my opinion. Even though we've had a really really good yeah, run, right. even though we had a really we've got a really good record against them at the moment, but yeah, a a lot can change about that, like. It makes, I mean, it makes the game what it is, but yeah, for, for us right now, I'm, yeah, I'm a bit stressed, a bit stressed. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm digging for yeah. positives here and we're playing at home. <laughs> I'm still uh, I mean, kind look, of they're... dynasty, so like my positivity <laughs> is not where it needs to be. No, there there right. are I definitely think... positives uh, and I, I don't think we're already writing this one off and saying it's a loss. I think we're a good enough team to beat West Ham, I just think it's it's going to be a bit of a slog and I feel like the rest of the season is potentially going to be a bit of a hard slog because of the fact that we're in the position we're in. And it's it's quite a weird one to say that because, you know, when you're in a relegation dogfight, you're going, geez, this, the rest of the season is going to be an absolute slog. We're going to really struggle to get through this. Jesus is going to be tough. Um, and actually this now period of the next nine games we've got up ahead of us, feels even tougher because there's there's not the jeopardy there of you know you're potentially going down there's not the want there for european football because it feels like that's slightly out of reach for us now and we're in this weird limbo where um we're not fighting so hard to keep ourselves up we're not fighting so hard to make europe we're just floating along and on top of that having lost um, the man who's going to score you the goals to push you forward. It it just it it feels like it's going to be a tough end to the season. I think there's a lot of people 
online as well worried about us potentially fizzling out from here? I can deal with uncomfortable moments for things that like I kind of know what I can I if I can preempt a situation I'm kind of happier in it I don't like loud noises and I don't like deep water because I can't see what's going on there and I don't know where that loud noise came from I don't understand what Fulham is mid-table in the Premier League so I'm stressed whereas like a relegation kind of fight I know what that is I've, I've been there I kind of understand it this I don't know and I don't understand so I'm actually even more stressed and like scared it, about it it is a matter a for... relegation fight this is what great team management comes down to. Um, like you say, it, it's really obvious and very kind of predictable, I suppose, as to how you fire a team up where you're facing loss and and, a, and like total rejection from like the Premier League and everything that goes with that. It's very easy for players to envision what they're fighting against. And how do you prevent just a collapse and an implosion when there's a glass ceiling here. You can only go so far. But that's that's what it's all about. And that's that's what Silver and his team, his management team, have to find a way to uh, to inject into the players. It's as simple as that. It's really interesting as well because you, you legitimately have managers that circle around the Premier League that literally almost specialize in getting teams out of relegation. Like you've got you've got your top four managers, you've got um, those kind of like mid-table ones, and you have those kind of managers, like your Sean Deitches, who like are really, really good at essentially, or like your Sam Allardyces, who are just like really, really good at just making sure your team doesn't go down when they're in the relegation fight. I'm not really sure like what type of manager Silver really is in the Premier League. I know he's obviously got a reputation for having a poor second half of the season, and it's too early to judge that, so I'm not going to label him as that. But yeah, it's just interesting, isn't it? I'm going to have to keep moving you guys along because uh, we've cool. got so That's much cool. to go through. Um, let's have a look at how Fulham may particularly line up but possibly lineup, not particularly. Um, now I've gone with um, the same lineup that we saw in the last game. I know Willian returns from suspension, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see Willian potentially come off the bench as a bit of an impact player, purely because I think he might be lacking a little bit of match fitness. Um, I think when you're playing week in, week out, you keep very sharp. I feel like Willian had the whole international break off plus another game as well on top of that off. I think it, I wouldn't be overly surprised to see Solomon get another start and BDR start on the right. Um, Sam, Dad, any thoughts on that potential lineup? I, I'm I not sure I agree it. with that. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> I, I, I think I think William, I think William will start. Um, in, in place I, of Solomon? Yeah, I do, actually. Um I think that's Silver's preferred. Yeah, I'm not even sure uh, if it's I mean, Silver's preferred. I think it's just I think we usually play better when he starts. It definitely makes sense, um, and I wouldn't be overly surprised to see Willian start. But um, yeah, I'm I'm not 100 percent sure. And you know, we talk about Silver preferred. I wonder if it's going to be uh, Boa preferred this week as well. So. <laughs> Um, we'll wait and see. I, I think across the board elsewhere, though, we're unlikely to see any changes. I think Vinicius 
um, didn't have the worst game. He didn't have the best game, but I also feel like um, at least he worked within the the tactics and the structure that we that we have. And I think we're going to stick with him and and hopefully see him continue to progress. Obviously, he did sit well. He didn't set up the goal, but he had a big part to play in the goal at Bournemouth. Uh, and I think seeing that it makes it worthwhile sticking with him even longer, um, because I, I think he's only going to grow into the, this position. He's doesn't seem like someone who's going to give up very easily. So I think we continue. Um, let's have a quick look at my top tip for the game. Um, Jack's We've got beautiful Sammy. Um, <clears throat> going as as I seem to always do with a three leg same game multi. Uh, it's paying eleven dollars, so eleven to one odds. Going for a double chance, which is Fulham or a draw, effectively. Um, so you win if Fulham win or Fulham draw. Uh, under two and a half goals. I think realistically, without Mitro in the team. We we look like we're lacking slightly creatively, and I don't see us scoring multiple goals. I wouldn't be surprised to see this as a one 0 win to Fulham, um, and I'm going with Willian as an anytime goal scorer. I was thinking personally Willian coming off the bench in the second half and and being the difference maker, but could also see him starting as we've sort of discussed there. Um, guys, thoughts on that as a as a bit of a multi. Feels like um, eleven to one for a one nil. Yeah, it does. It, it feels doesn't feel like great odds to be honest. No, it, and look, this one was actually tough to find any half decent odds. You know, looking around the players as potential scorers, I think when you've got Mitro in the team, he he sort of takes takes over the odds. If that makes sense, he's always you know your number one for an anytime goal scorer. Um, and the other players then seem to get these huge odds for scoring a goal. Um, it's it's just sort of shift a little bit with Mitra out of the team. There's not a huge amount of value in this one. Fulham uh, again are not the fav. Oh, they're they're favourites, but only very slight favourites. I think paying about two dollars forty or two dollars fifty to West Ham's two dollars seventy, two dollars eighty, that kind of mark. Um, and you know, I, I've bumped the odds down massively with Fulham or draw. That's paying about a dollar forty. So this pumps up to about twenty dollars, I think, if you put it to a Fulham win. Um, it's well, it's we, hard to find value at the moment. We, yeah, we were scoffing at what the bookies were rating Fulham's chances of winning against Bournemouth last week. <laughs> yeah, well, and, we were, we were uh, proved the, wrong. The, yeah. So, so every every week that that happens, where you know Fulham in eighth, ninth, tenth place plays someone way below us and we lose, uh, just kind of makes the bookies look more and more correct. Well, we're we're looking for value. Sometimes you don't find value. Um, uh, I think if if you wanted to add a little bit of value here, you probably change that to a Fulham win, um, and then change it to. Uh, a potentially a correct score attempt at one nil Fulham, or a Willian first goal scorer, for example, um, that would definitely boost the odds slightly. But uh, uh, this one's hard to find anything decent for, to be honest. Um, you could always try and bump it up with um, good odds for a Polina yellow card. That always works. Hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, uh, it's on, it's an interesting. Honestly, there's not value this week. That's what I found. Honestly, I, I really couldn't care about 
the, the betting opportunity to make 10 bucks. How uh, what, what I do dare find you take away Jack's top tips. <laughs> yeah, no, um, but what I find really interesting is the prevailing view on what people think the odds of certain outcomes are, because that, that's what I think is interesting here, right? Um, mm. And, you know, when you can find that arbitrage of, you know, something that we can spot and perhaps other people aren't picking up on, it's both interesting and potentially an opportunity to throw a tenor at. So this this one, I think more than anything, it, it, looking at the odds show that this this game feels very even. And I think it's sort of what we discussed that West Ham are a decent side. Um, Fulham are, you know, in quite poor form at the moment and have some other issues that they're dealing with. Um, this isn't going to be an easy game and, and therefore there's not much value around because the bookies are covering their asses effectively by not offering not offering great odds because that obviously that's how the bookies make their money. They offer these tantalising odds, get you to put your money down and then take the money away from you very quickly, all in the blink of an eye. Please um, gamble responsibly. As always. Um, but there's sounds, just... like, sounds like a lot of lived experience there, Jack. Well, <laughs> maybe. Um, this game just, this it feels close. And the way we're talking about it, as as Fulham fans saying it feels close, the bookies are, are obviously onto that as well and, and saying, you know, West Ham look half decent or in good form. Fulham are in bad form and also look half decent. Which way does this one go? Um, and I can't pick it personally. Um, and so, I mean, that's exactly why I pick Fulham in a draw as a double chance rather than going for a Fulham win like I usually do um, because I just think this one this one's going to be tight. Um, look, let's move on because, like I said, there's there's so much to talk about today. Let's have a quick look at some news. And this is a lovely slide that I put together that says news. Perfect. Um, first thing for us to discuss, um, because from after this, basically, it's it's talk about what happened with the FA and, and the bands. Fulham lodged their accounts for the 21-22 season with Company House. Um, we saw some really interesting figures come out and... Um, Big thanks to Kieran Maguire, the uh, author of The Price of Football, who put together a bit of a summary of the accounts. Um, the key figures are income was down 39% to $71 million. Now, just a reminder as well that this is for the season that Fulham were in the championship, so this is last season's accounts. Um, wages were down 21% to $90 million, but that was a championship record for wages. Um, and when you consider that... You know, a lot of teams' wage packets in the championships are probably closer to that sort of 20, 30, 40 million mark. Um, it's it's crazy the amount of money Fulham was spending on wages, and, and it was a championship record. The average weekly wage was 42,000. I'd say the average weekly wage in the championship overall is probably closer to the 20,000 mark. So it shows just how much Fulham were paying their players and just how much faith we were putting in. Um, in Marco as well, and and the playing group to come back up because if you don't come straight back up with weekly wages of forty two thousand a week, you're in a lot of trouble. Um, in terms of losses pre player sales, sixty nine million pound loss. Uh, total losses over the years. Now I'm not exactly sure when they say over the years how many years this is. Uh, it might be since the Khans took over. 
um, total losses of £563 million. Player purchases for the year, £24 million. Player sales, £24 million. So they even themselves out. Borrowings from owner in the year, £116 million. So the Khans put in £116 million last year. Um, Thank and you. total owner investment since the Khans took over uh, is put in £677 million. Um, when you look at the total losses of the year over the years, of £563 million lost. Um, I don't want to say putting... Putting uh, what what's the saying? Putting bad money after after more bad good money. money. After, good, good money. Putting after good bad. money after bad money. It it does stink a little bit of that. I have to say, um, when you look at the fact that the Khans are constantly funding the club, and we're obviously incredibly thankful that they are, um, but it does feel like those losses are, are extremely high. Um, and but, you look but at other clubs. If you think about it, well, from from where you sit, Jack, you're now sitting. With not only in the Premier League, but you've done well in the Premier League and you've survived. So that doubling down—that's a doubling down um, set of accounts. From having just been relegated, and like, yeah. right, what do we do here? We, we we want to keep Metro. Metro cost us a lot of money in the Championship and a number of other players. You know, we're on um, Premier League type agreements who agreed to stay. And so it is a doubling down on the basis that if you don't do it, you could free fall. So it worked. So it's not, it's sure. not actually good money after bad. But my my issue that I'm seeing here is we're spending ninety million in wages with an income of only seventy one million. Now I know the income will get a massive boost being in the Premier League um, because you get you know extra sponsorship money, extra TV money, extra commercial dollars flying through the door uh, but it doesn't look like we're kind of even close to being in a position where we're going to be making a profit anytime soon um, no, but and if, that... if you look at it if you look at it purely on the basis of uh, sort of income versus expenses and there's no and you assume there's no prize at the end of it then it looks like a bad investment that you're just losing money every year without any opportunity to, to actually have a win for. But the Premier League and Champions League, God forbid, and Europe and does give you that opportunity to make a win for. So you have to look at it as a longer-term investment, and I can see what they're doing. I, I, think, you, I think that's very, very optimistic. I, I think we, we're looking at here the fact that your wages, just wages – not any other expenses, are uh, 20 million pounds more than the income that you're actually bringing in. Uh, you know, we spent a lot of money bringing players in and the only player who left for any fee last season was Carvalho and that's for five million pounds. Um, there, there was obviously some, something came for um, Anguissa as well, but I believe that's tiered over multiple years. So money's not coming in massively over that period. Um, and we're still paying big transfer fees as well in instalments for Pereira, for Leno, for a handful of other players as well. Like it's, We don't have a huge amount of money coming in. We're spending a lot of money on building the new stand, uh, the Riverside stand, which still isn't finished yet. Um, it just feels like that I, I don't know if we're poorly managed financially. Um, I, I look at Brentford, for example, uh, as just an example that I, that I 
saw the other day and they're turning quite big profits um you know 25 30 million pound profits um and so they're obviously managing their money quite a lot better than we are at the moment um and it's it's fractionally worrying i, I i'm interested obviously to see what the accounts say at the end of this season and hopefully we we get a little bit of breathing room after that because of being in the Premier League and then staying in the Premier League. So you get two lots of that TV revenue, which make a big difference. But I think it, it is a slight worry, and I don't know exactly how it affects our FFP standing, and I think we'll find that out as people dive deeper into it over the coming weeks. But I think there's there's a few little things to be worried about there. Do you think as well it's just kind of down to our business model because you've cited like teams like Brentford and Brighton are amazing at it and also Southampton are pretty good at it as well. Um, Their whole business model is essentially get players, flip them. Like get players and then flip them for like three times the price, build them up. That's not really what we do. Um. I remember you you mentioned this ages ago how we actually have a bit of a problem with essentially selling off players and a lot of our players literally just leave as like free agents and we essentially burn money through doing that but we do at especially um this season we do have higher aspirations than your southamptons and like ah yeah and you brightons as well yeah i think there's there's definitely an issue that comes to the fore especially over the last two or three years where we've seen Carvalho leave for five million when he's a 20 30 million pound player and you see Harvey Elliott leave for I think it was like two million and he's probably a 30 million pound player as well we, mm. we've effectively lost out on 60 million pounds in player sales over those two periods at which point um you know if, if we look at there, the losses pre-player sales, um, and obviously our player sales and player purchases even themselves out in that season. But if we'd picked up those amounts for those players, those those losses all of a sudden dropped down to something much more manageable. And you look at getting into the Premier League as a as a position to make a profit. Um, I, I just think we we haven't been careful about it. I, I look at who we released this season. Or, or sold and released. Um, we've got Carvalho. We've got Alfie Mawson, who cost us twelve million pounds. He was released on a free. Uh, Jean Michel Seri, I think he cost us twenty million pounds, released on a free. Um, you know, there's there's just big big losses there, and we we do need to be a little bit wary because we've we're seeing clubs getting pinged for not complying with FFP. There's a lot of talk about Everton potentially getting some points docked fairly soon because they haven't complied with FFP. We just saw Reading in the Championship get docked 12 points. Like, we, we do need to be a little bit careful about this, and I, I think it it's something we should be a little bit worried about. Look, um, Brighton, complete outliers. They are exemplary in, you know, the way that they do it, their model. I think it, most people have a similar aspiration, if not a model, most clubs, but they just don't pull it off. And the big thing that we haven't pulled off, it's not like we don't have an academy, a great academy, incredible. Mm. We, we turn out incredible youth, but we haven't sustained the success. And we're talking about this ad nauseum. We, we, we haven't found a way to work those young players into our teams 
because we were always fighting for relegation and we couldn't roll the dice and take a chance on them. And Brighton have prevailed and have actually got themselves into a position where they consistently perform well and can blood players and have a culture now of doing that and a, and a business model. I, I don't think you can compare it to Brentford, who have actually been up for a couple of years. And to be, to be fair, I totally agree with you, Jack, that we've wasted money on some of those names um, that have cost us dearly. And it's all part of that hundred million pound splurge that really went so horribly wrong that we're still feeling the effects of. And these accounts very much reflect the end of that cycle largely because, you know, the, the, the losses actually crystallise here, actually part of those poor purchases, right? But going yeah. forward, if we can if we can kind of become that mid-table, at worst, team um, like Brighton, then there is an opportunity to, to give these player, young players a go and if you can actually bring them in and make them and, and showcase them as Premier League players, then you should be getting much better returns or possibly keeping them. Right. I think I think one thing that um, is worth noting is we've got a really strong academy, whereas to, uh, to my knowledge, at least, um, Brentford are actually no, sorry, not Brentford. Um, Brian are buying very specific players that they see a lot of potential in, and from other clubs, and then essentially flipping them for about three times the price. Whereas I could you even argue that we're actually relying far too much on the fact that we know that we have got a really good academy, but realistically, you're not usually. Well, no, I'll stop you there because which players in the current Fulham team are from our academy? Well, yeah, that's, that's the thing. But like we, like the the mentality that we have is we've got a really strong academy. For for every other club. (laughs) But there's, there's, there's no point being made there because we, 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 don't have any of the academy players in our team except for Luke Harris sitting on the bench occasionally, but not getting any minutes. Mm. We're not making any money off our academy. And it's an interesting point because Brentford actually uh, got rid of their academy and decided to create what they call a B team instead. Um, I don't know. They just, I think they only play friendlies. Um, Mm. uh, Interesting though. And I guess we need to look at this across the board. Um, a, a article was released back in September of last year um, with forecasts for profit and loss, and they did forecast only five teams to make a profit in 21-22. That's just that in sense. the Premier League um, with you know massive, massive losses across the board. They, they're forecasting Man United to have lost $100 million, Chelsea mm-hmm. to have lost $86 million, Arsenal $84 million, um, and you know we've got losses pre-player sales sixty-nine million. That would actually put us in the top five um, worst-performing clubs in terms of profit and loss for this uh, for that season in the Premier League, which is a, a little worrying, uh, I think. When you know, I understand why Arsenal, Chelsea, Man United have those huge losses because they're spending a lot of money on players. Um, we we're not. So uh, look, I think it's something that we can probably continue to monitor and look at and i'm really interested to see how this affects our ffp going forward and to see what further comes out from this um i'll keep moving on though what we'll do is we'll have a look at um the fa statement 
after the um, penalties were handed down. And uh, I'll read out a little bit from uh, the sanctions that actually got handed down by the disciplinary panel. Um, Fulham FC, Marco Silva and Alexander Mitrovic have been sanctioned by an independent regulatory commission following a hearing in relation to their tie against Man United in the FA Cup on Sunday the 19th of March. Marco Silva admitted that he used abusive and insulting words, gestures and behaviour towards the match referee around the 72nd minute, that he abused, he used abusive and insulting words towards the fourth official before being sent off, and that he used abusive and insulting words, gestures and behaviour towards the fourth official after being dismissed. However, he denied that he threw a water bottle in the direction of the assistant referee and that his behaviour in doing so was improper. The regulatory commission upheld the outstanding charge against him and imposed a two-match touchline ban and a £20,000 fine. The manager also admitted that comments he made in the post-match press conference constitute improper conduct in that they imply bias, question the integrity of the match official, and bring the game into disrepute. As a result, the regulatory commission imposed an additional £20,000 fine. We claimed the standard punishment which would otherwise apply to Alexander Mitrovic for the sending off offence of violent conduct that he be committed sorry that he committed towards the match referee around the 72nd minute was clearly insufficient. The forward denied this, but it was upheld by the regulatory commission and a three-match ban was imposed. This is in addition to the three-match ban he had already received for the red card offence. The forward separately admitted that his behaviour and language after being sent off was improper, abusive, insulting and threatening, and the regulatory commission imposed an additional two-match ban and a £75,000 fine. In total, the regulatory commission has suspended Alexander Mitrovic for eight matches. One of these has already been served, and therefore the forward will be unavailable for Fulham's next seven matches. Finally, the club admitted that it failed to ensure its players conducted themselves in an orderly fashion around the 72nd minute, and the regulatory commission imposed a £40,000 fine. We await the regulatory commission's written reasons for these decisions, which will be published in due course. Now, on top of that, I've just included for those following along on our live feed um, a note from the FA spokesperson on Twitter we note the decision of the Independent Regulatory Commission to sanction Alexander Mitrovic and Marco Silva. Our current intention is to appeal both sanctions. However, we will await the written reasons before confirming our final position. So to recap and sort of sum up, Mitro's picked up a three-game ban for the red card, an additional three games for his behaviour, and then they have decided to impose an additional two-match ban for um, improper, abusive, insulting, and threatening language. Um, I mean, the I, I think all of that, in essence, is is kind. You can argue that it's fair. The three match ban, I understand. The additional three match, I understand. The two on top of that, I think, is is pushing it, and that's a bit of throwing the book time. Um, the fact that the FA have come out and said that they're unhappy with that decision. That, that riles me up a bit. I'm not happy about that. I think the the initial ban, you go, yep, okay, they threw the book at us. Uh, we copped it much worse than other teams would have done, but hey-ho, that's the way life is at the moment. The fact that they're coming out and saying we're not even happy with that, that seems kind of outrageous to me. Um, Dad, what are your sort of quick thoughts on, 
on that because I don't want to spend too much time about it because we've talked it to death recently. Well, the thing that caught my ear as you read out the summary was Marcus Silva's bad language bringing the game in. Oh, no, Marcus Silva comments um, in the press conference were basically bringing the game into, into disrepute. The game is in disrepute. How do you bring that to the attention of a wider audience without actually being sanctioned for it? You know, can I say something is wrong, rotten in the state of Denmark? Yeah, well, look, I, I think, geez, I mean, what, what, what can you say about it? Like, well, well what it, I can man, say is I, it, it, this well, is no, just ridic it's ridiculous. Because it, it feels... the, the, the language and the filth from every player that you can see mouthed on the field week in, week out, no one thinks it's good. They think it's disgusting. But I think what's more troubling about it is that it's never, ever pulled up. As we've said, spoken before, if this was a rugby game, these guys would be off. Mm. And, um, you know, at least everyone would know where they stand. But, no, that's not how it's dealt with. And that's the frustrating part. You can't My be sanctimonious and virtue virtue signalling about how morally correct you are, and and how concerned you are about how players behave when you very very occasionally choose to actually penalise players for it. It's ridiculous. My, my, I'll cut you off finally. My my issue here <laughs> is I, I feel like um, referees are in some way too much of a protected species. I feel like we can't say that they did a bad job ever because that's unfair. We can't, you can't question their decisions. You, whatever a referee says stands and is right. And the FA, I think are doing too much to protect referees um, from kind of any kind of, you know, we, we're not allowed to say we don't agree with a referee's decision. And if a manager does say that, then they get sanctioned. And I, I think that's completely unreasonable. I think uh, a manager's allowed to go out there in a press conference and say, the referee did a terrible job. He has been terrible in Fulham games previously, and it feels like there's a vendetta against us when he's refereeing. I don't think that's unfair. Um, and I don't think a manager should be fined for giving his opinion. You're never uh, going to be allowed my, to do that, Jack. I know, You're but I, I, I think referees should be protected physically. Uh, I think they should be protected from having players spitting in their face. And when I say spitting in their face, I mean spitting words in their face, getting right up in their grill, touching them, being intimidating, threatening them. I don't think that's allowed. But I think at the same time, we should be allowed to at least voice our opinions on referees' performances and say yeah. he didn't do a good enough job. Because at the end of the day... Marco Silva's job can be decided by a refereeing decision. He he can get the sack because we get a couple of bad decisions from referees and we lose games off the back of it. And I think it's it's totally fair for Silva to come out and say the referee did a poor job every time he referees against Fulham. It seems like he doesn't want us to win the game and decisions go against us. I don't think that's unfair. I don't hate the idea that you have a governing body that is fully in control of the game and polices it with a clear set of rules and implements those rules absolutely uh, 
fairly across the board and evenly. And there's no one gets a free ride. And on the field, there is the referee, like a policeman, upholds the rules. I've got no problem with any of that. And if if the FA or the authorities were actually doing their job and actually um, holding referees to account and getting rid of ones that are just not very good, um, then I don't think people in general are going to have a problem. The problem is not about... Um, the penalties and about the rules here, the problem is purely about the fact that not everyone's equal. Yeah, it's kind of devolved into a bit of an ethical conversation as opposed yeah. to you touch a referee it's you get four games it's or whatever. Like it's, um, yeah, it's, I think it's kind of sad to be honest because it just kind of um, illustrates that they're, Game's a mess. Yeah, and like if there is democracy in the game, and if this was kind of like put down to a vote among people within the FA, then it's clearly come from a very emotional place as opposed to a matter of fact decision. And um, yeah, I think that's gross. Yep. Let's move on. And unfortunately, (laughs) we're not moving off topic, but we're moving on. Uh, We'll have a look at some top tweets. I've picked out a couple here. Um, Dad, I don't know if you want to read them out. Yeah, we can read them out. Um, this is from uh, Fulhamish. Um, games at Metro will miss. Uh, West Ham at home, obviously, this weekend. Everton away. Leeds at home. Villa away. Man City home. Uh, Liverpool away. Leicester at home. And the funny thing, looking down that, a couple of weeks ago, um I think we all would have been pretty confident about some of those fixtures and that we're picking up points. Uh, it's all to play for right now, isn't it? I mean, can you can you really can you really call any of those? Yeah, well, I think um, we talked about West Ham being good side. Everton have a good side. Leeds aren't terrible. Villa, Man City, and Liverpool all ahead of us in the league, and Leicester have some quality players. Like it's uh, actually all of a sudden those next seven fixtures look pretty tough. The, the the one positive thing is that it, with only eight game, games that he's banned for, he will be available for the Man United fixture, which mm. will give it gives at least. Look, let's be very clear. I don't think anyone, Man United, did nothing wrong two weeks ago. The the the, the referee didn't treat us fairly, in our opinion. But mm. it would be nice to set that record straight and at least have another game with a full side against Man United and at least um, e- e- even though it may not count for anything at all in terms of significant um, Premier League table positions, it would be nice to show that we could play 90 minutes and maybe deliver what what we thought was going to happen that night. Yeah, definitely. Uh, let's look at our next one. This is from at AdamFFC on Twitter. Uh, going to spin this Metro ban into a positive, good man. Six weeks to rest up from his injuries, return with three games left, and on the final day, cost Man United fourth place with a 96-minute winner. <laughs> yep, that sounds good to me. Yeah, well, great. I hope that's all Got to true. try and find the positives very, in a situation like this. It's very Ted um, Lasso, isn't it? Last three games, we do have we've got Southampton, Crystal Palace, and then Man City in the last three. Sorry, Man United in the last three games. I mean, Mitro back for Southampton, Palace at home, and then Man United. It's 
it's three good games to have him back for. They're very, very winnable fixtures, and it might be. I don't think it'll be squeaky bum time by the end of the season, but there's definitely going to be a few things to play for in terms of positions in the table by that point. I think with nine points to play for in those last three, um, I mean, Mitro, you know, he's got now, what is it today? The the 5th of April. His next game is the 13th of May. He's got a long time to sit and put his feet up and, and get a decent amount of rest, put in some work on the uh, on the training pitch. Uh, in sort of early May, late April, and come back firing and hopefully pick up three goals in that time. Uh, let's move on to the next tweet. Uh, this is from our friend MJG. And this one's from M- MJG, yeah. Uh, first chance to comment on Metro. Eight games at the top end. Top, Sorry, at, at the top of, top of end of what most expect, I think. Uh, six would have been almost acceptable, but taking it to eight. Yes, he was over-aggressive, but FFS, can I say that? Uh, look, look at some other reactions recently. If you're not in the big boys club, you don't have a chance. You have no chance. Yeah. yeah. As we said, um, yeah, it really feels like the, the big boys are treated slightly differently and we wouldn't be having this conversation if we were a Man United podcast. Well, they're not having this conversation, and they should be, which is, I think, what what really it feels like a bit of a stickler for us. Um, one from a, a really great tweeter here. That's so Craven on Twitter. Do you want me to read this out, or do you want to read out your own? Oh, I'll just read it out because I tweeted it. Uh, <laughs> I hope the FA are going to apply some uniformity if this is their approach. So surely, see three or four other recent incidents all receive similar bans. It cannot be one rule for some and a different rule for others. The FA needs to show some consistency. And it's what we talked about at the very top of this as well. Um, And, yeah, like you say, unfortunately, it doesn't feel like it's going to happen. And then one final one, and it's one that really uh, pissed me off, for want of any better phrase there. Um, uh, At Ambrose Barnaby on Twitter, Barney and Chris, who are, um, great tweeters. I, I love following them. They they put up a post saying eight games is too much and they have the cheek to appeal this. I'm now officially convinced there's a vendetta against our club or clubs of our size. And I want to call out the fact that Ref Support UK on Twitter, who are a registered charity, then decided to quote and tweet back saying another one that thinks refs have a vendetta against them another pin in the ref conspiracy against our team map. If you know a deluded fan, please let us know and we will see if we can fit another pin in. Now, I have to say for Just a charity to, to be for that. for a charity to be retweeting someone for having an opinion on a ban, it just seems ridiculous. And and I did tweet out in support of Barney and Chris after that as well because I, I just thought that was that was pretty poor from a registered charity that's meant to be supporting people who are lambasted for their opinions most of the time uh, to then get on top of someone tweeting out their opinion on Twitter and and basically telling people to go all in on other people who have opinions and saying refs aren't aren't very good. Uh, It sort of ties into my thoughts that we should be allowed to criticise refereeing decisions and refereeing performances. I don't think it's 
it should be against the rules to have an opinion. I think referees shouldn't be abused. I think referees shouldn't be threatened. But at the same time, we should be allowed to have an opinion on how someone's doing and, and their performance, considering their performance is so key to a game of football. And I think a charity that say they support referees also shouldn't be coming out and basically... It's not a threat, but it, it feels quite aggressive to be calling someone out on Twitter as a charity with, you know thousands of followers and saying find us other deluded fans it, it feels wrong and i just wanted to shout that out because barney and chris do a lot of tweeting uh, they take some great photos as well of craven cottage and they support um a couple of teams as well it, it just feels like that was a, a a really weird moment it just shows that people get caught up in everything that's happening and it was pretty disappointing to see and i just want to throw a bit of support behind those guys who who do follow Fulham very closely and, and put in, you know, a lot of effort following a team, spend a lot of money doing that, and then to get called out by a charity just seems ridiculous. Um, just a comment here from Rian following on our YouTube. I do think referees should be eligible to get a yellow or red card for doing a poor job on the day. Guys, what do you think about that? I completely agree. Completely agree. Also, if you like, um, if you're tweeting that sort of rhetoric, even if like you're a charity or whatever, I think you're absolutely disgusting. It's it it's in the nature of a charity to be impartial and to go after a passive tweeter. It, I think it's gross, and I think you should be ashamed of yourself. Sorry, I came with a lot of venom to that, but yeah. To answer your question, I think there should be red cards for referees. Dad? Yeah, who's gonna impl- who's gonna implement that? Um, and how is that going to be done? I like I like the the, the concept of it. VAR. What you're, what you're saying is you're holding you know officials to account, and there has to be a way. But the problem is it's all done behind closed doors, and no public accountability is ever provided for it. I I, I did note that once a ref sent himself off Excellent. in a game of football. No, that can't be right. I believe that's what? true. Do you know what I'd love actually? I, I've I've actually I've 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 constructed it in my brain. We get Chat GPT to watch a game of football, and then if they think the referee's being a bit dodgy, if they call it, because I trust Chat GPT. Oh, that would uh, be cool. I mean, the, you know, I, there no. are there are panels out there um, that you know do this kind of thing where they they look at performances and and make decisions. I think. They actually just need to be a lot harsher on their referees. Um, you know, we see it in cricket fairly often. Um, umpires effectively just getting dropped from the elite panel because they're not good enough. And I think maybe there's a lack of referees around, but it also is a bit of an issue, I think, that we only allow or we only look at English referees effectively. It, it takes a lot of effort, and I know we've seen it with one of the Australian referees coming across and doing a really good job, but... I think we need to expand and allow referees from, you know, elsewhere to come and actually referee Premier League games because it's one of the best leagues in the world. You should be allowing the best referees to come in and do a proper job as well uh, because they're not doing a good enough job at the moment. But don't you think you're being a bit naive in in trying to suggest all these things that would make the practice of refereeing and officiating fair and equal when – there doesn't seem to be any motivation to want to do that. That's the whole point. They don't want it to be best practice. They actually want to favour the top six. 
So mm. why would they? I want don't think. I don't anything? think every referee wants to do that. I think there's there's a lot of pressure no, as a referee. FA, you know, the FA is supporting that. They, the FA must be supporting that viewpoint um, because you know it's, well, it makes some money commercially. It makes, it makes sense it, to support absolutely. those bigger teams. Um, totally. But you know, we still see those teams get red cards. We still see them get dodgy VAR decisions. I don't think it's um, as as blatant as it maybe used to be. But at the same time, I just feel like the the refereeing system and the FA in general need a massive shake up, and it feels like it, it needs to happen. But I, I can't see any reason for it happening or when it's going to happen. That's that's the biggest problem here. Um, anyway, look, that that's. All of our tweets we're going to go through, and now we're moving on to one of Sam's things again. Sammy, what have you got for us to try and round out this podcast today? I almost think we've got to like pick a new name aside from Sam's thing. I, I, I appreciate the steam that it's getting, but yeah, comment section completely open you up. Give me some good stuff. Anyway, that's time for some silly bollocks. So um, I was going through um, the – because we're now – in the, the bottom half of like the table, I was looking through the bottom half of the Aria's top ten charts um, because, for lack of yeah, honestly, the top songs didn't necessarily resonate with me that much. So, just based on the song title alone, you have to decide which player it resonates with more. Okay, so starting from number five in the Aria charts. Die for You by The Weeknd, Tom Kearney or Tim Ream. Go. Uh, Tim Ream. He'd put his life on the line to to save me. I'm sure of it. Yeah. I, yeah, can I argue? Okay. Uh, this one is specifically in reference to the Bournemouth game. Eyes Closed by Ed Sheeran, Anthony Robinson or Harrison Reed. <laughs> Sorry, who, who was the first... <laughs> <laughs> Anthony Robinson. Uh, so Robinson, it's me. sorry, yeah. it's sorry, <laughs> Jedi. <laughs> uh, Anti-hero by Taylor Swift, number seven, Mitrovic or Marco Silva. Good <laughs> uh, pick up, Mitro. Mitro. Yeah, close. <laughs> I mean, I feel like these are going to be pretty unanimous, but it's still good to just do it. Um, yeah, you've done eight, well. It's, Escapism by Ray and Zero uh, Seven O Shakes. I think it's O Seven O Shakes. Uh, escapism, Leno or Pelina? I think Leno. Uh, no, sorry, Pelina. He 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 allows me to dream. He does allow me to dream. He's like he's. I like think Leno. I, I think Leno occasionally looks a little bit um, dead behind the eyes. Just got that like. <laughs> Terminator sort of stare. Ooh, um, no, not in a harsh way, just like completely zoned in. He just looks like he's fully outside of his head. He's like floating above his own body. I, you're I can saying see a Leno bit of escapism is... there for Leno. Okay. All right. Okay. Nope. Fair enough. And finally, uh, I like this one Creepin. Uh, oh, Christ. I forgot who it's up by. But Creepin is number nine in the charts. Dan James or Harry Wilson, who's creeping into the Fulham team right now? Neither of them. Um, well, I mean, who's more likely to creep into the team? Now, I have to there. say, Dan James had a really good international break, apparently. 
Um, so I think it's probably Dan James creeping in. Um, I think to so inject, well. is that, is that, to inject yeah. a little bit of pace. He's had two games, nah. and so yeah, I'd probably give it to Dan James. But uh, got any other names? <laughs> uh, well, Vinicius is already in. He's not exactly creeping. Um, he's he, oh, I almost swore he's knocked down the door. He's in the house. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You gotta, you gotta love what he's done. I love, I um, love, I love the story of Vinicius. Yeah, he's like yeah. a squatter. Well, look, guys, I think that was definitely not your worst, Sammy. In fact, it's probably pretty close to your best. I'm going to say. Um, yeah, I agree. I do what so, I can. I do what I can. No, you did 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 very well there. So, look, let's um, wrap it up there, guys. Uh, I think our longest podcast yet. Thanks so much to those who followed along live, um, and thanks to all our recent listeners as well. And everyone who's been engaging with us on Twitter, on Facebook, everywhere. Um, really, really appreciated. And um, look, please, please continue to support us. We're, we're wrapping up towards the end of the season. We want to try and finish with a bit of a bang as well. Um, tough one today to to go through this podcast and talk through a lot of news, especially big stuff that's a little bit controversial too. So, so thank you for everyone who uh, has interacted with us on this topic on Twitter recently. It's been... Um, yeah, a, t- a tough one to talk about, a bit of a tough one to take for us, but um, I think we can almost officially put this one to bed now. I know it's definitely going to continue to be mentioned going forward, but I really hope that we can put this behind us and just focus on the season going forward from here. So, look, Sammy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I wish it was under better circumstances, but, yeah, it's it's good. And Dad, thank you for being with us as well. Yep, thank you. I think, uh, despite the difficult conversations, I think it, I think we all agree that it kind of feels better having talked it through. Always. And so, until next time, come on, you whites. <laughs>